Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton's mayoral race just got a whole lot more interesting. Should Ontario's catch-up plan for students have a backup plan? Pope Francis continues his penitential journey in Canada. We'll tell you about a new psychotherapy program at Mac Kids Hospital. And the Commonwealth Games are set to start in England. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. I have not only the experience experience, uh, but the record of, uh, of hard work and collaboration, things that Hamiltonians expect uh, of each other and of their elected people. And I look forward to using everything that I've learned to help us realize the great potential that our city has. And she's in, Andrea Horvath, uh, confirming yesterday that she has indeed entered Hamilton's mayoral race for this fall's municipal election after years as leader of Ontario's new Democratic Party. What is her vision for Hamilton? Well, let's ask her. Andrea Horvath joins us now here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Andrea, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much. Good morning, Rick. How long have you been mulling over this opportunity? Well, I, I started to mull it over in a serious way uh, after I got uh, some time down from the last provincial election. Uh, and I was receiving a lot of um, emails and texts and phone calls from family and friends and, uh, and, uh, and folks that have known me for many, many years, neighbours in, uh, in Hamilton, uh, encouraging me to give it serious consideration. And so I started to do that. And, um, and I'm really excited, frankly. I'm really excited. I'm, I'm happy that I've I came to this decision uh, because I think our city's got a, a lot of, uh, of great opportunities ahead. I think the best uh, days of Hamilton are in front of us, and I'm, I'm really, really hoping I can be a part of uh, realizing the opportunities. We know that for a number of reasons, politics, partisan politics these days, has really gotten divisive over the last number of years. Did any of that play a part in your decision to re-enter municipal politics? Well, that's a really great question, Rick, and I appreciate it because one of the things I missed uh, when I went into, uh, uh, you know, party politics, if you will, when I left the city of Hamilton uh, was exactly that. It, it wasn't as easy to just, uh, you know, strike up conversations and, and come to some, uh, you know, common ground uh, with, uh, with people, regardless of their political stripe or, or, you know, who they represented, particularly in the, in the province. Unlike city council where, where that's exactly what the whole thing is about doesn't matter what your political stripe is everybody's in it for the the city and and for for the uh, the people of the city of hamilton at least that's my experience um you know from from uh, when i was on council and i'm looking forward if i'm given the honor of doing so to getting back to that kind of uh that kind of scenario where it is about collaboration uh, where it's about you know finding uh, uh the common ground on a vision that takes us forward uh, and that does so in a way that Hamiltonians not only feel excited about and proud of, uh, but where we we realize uh, and, and actually have real results on, on some of the things that uh, that people want to see addressed. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Andrea Horvath, Hamilton mayoral candidate, former NDP leader and MPP for Hamilton Centre, one of your counterparts at Queen's Park, sent out a statement yesterday. Premier Doug Ford saying, as I said the day after the election, there will be no doubt that Andrea wakes up every day ready to fight for what she believes in. I want to thank her for her years of public service, both as the leader of the opposition and as MPP for Hamilton Centre. As municipal elections approach, I wish all candidates across Ontario the best of luck. Nice words, but do you think Doug Ford is happy that you're out of his hair? (laughs) <laughs> well, I think what one of the things that the premier knows uh, is that another new Democrat 
uh, will officially being back in his hair pretty soon. And that's just the way it works. I appreciate the uh, uh, the premier's words, uh, the statement that he put out. Uh, I think everybody realizes that opposition has a role to play. It's not personal. Uh, it's the way our, our democratic process works at the provincial level. Uh, and, um, you know, and, and, and we all have a job to do. Having said that, my my job, hopefully, if I'm given that um, uh, that opportunity, uh, will be to work with everybody in Hamilton, uh, all of the uh, elected officials, uh, all the orders of government, to fight for Hamilton, uh, to really be leading up Team Hamilton, and uh, and everybody that's been elected, no matter what your political stripe and no matter what your office, uh, really has an obligation. Uh, to our city to uh, to do that work together. And, and I'm I'm looking forward to, to having those conversations with folks uh, if I'm given the chance to uh, to serve as mayor. Two of the candidates in Hamilton's mayoral race, yourself as well as Bob Rutina, a former Liberal MP, have been involved for years now in partisan politics. Is, is there a stain that you have to shed now that you're back into civic politics or municipal politics? Because the perception out there is, oh, here's an NDP or here's a Liberal, here's a Conservative, and that really doesn't play a role in the council chambers no you're right uh, rick it doesn't play a role uh, and i think that um uh, that what uh, what people need to know about me is that uh, I, i'll serve as mayor uh, for all hamiltonians no matter your political stripe no matter when you made hamilton your home uh, no matter what your circumstances no matter what your income level uh, no matter you know what what it is that uh, uh, that connects you to our city the reality is that's the mayor's job is to uh, is to be a mayor for all all people and you know everyday people i don't know if they're all that concerned uh, when it comes to municipal politics uh, about people's political stripe they want to know that their uh, that their community is safe they want to know that their kids uh, don't have to worry about walking down the street to their friend's house and 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 being uh, you know being hit by a driver uh, th- that they can ride their bikes safely in their neighborhoods <laughs> that the potholes on their streets are are fixed that their libraries and recreation centers and the programming uh, is there to uh, to help them to to build a great life and to have a great life in our in our city in all the communities of Hamilton that's that's the that's got to be the focus and i think that's what people want to see when it comes to municipal politics we have one more minute with Andrea Horvath Hamilton mayoral candidate here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML what's the number one issue facing this city right now in terms of a challenge or an opportunity well I, I think the number one issue and I think it's both a challenge and an opportunity uh, is our housing crisis um, we, we what I want to see my vision for Hamilton is a is a city where everyone uh, has the ability uh, to afford to live here uh, whether you're a renter whether you're a homeowner or wanting to get into the housing market and we know we are going to keep that urban boundary firm which is a good thing but let's make sure that we develop housing that meets people's needs the needs of families the needs of seniors the needs of uh, uh, of, of young people who want to get into the market uh, the needs of working people uh, who right now are having a real struggle particularly with inflation the way it is uh, so so those are so there you go there's one that's one issue but it has both opportunity in terms of of all of the growth we're going to see uh, in terms of housing and the and the uh, the the units if you will that we're, are going to be onboarded but let's make sure we build communities and, and not just units Andrea, appreciate the time. Good luck on the campaign trail. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Rick.
That is Andrea Horvath Hamilton, mayoral candidate, longtime former NDP leader for the uh, NDP here in Ontario and MPP for Hamilton Centre. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We do have a new candidate that has entered the race to become Hamilton's mayor. I'm confident that I have a lot of experience, uh, a a lot of networks and connections, uh, a a great record of hard work uh, and of of deep love um, for this community. I've worked for the people of Hamilton for literally my entire life. Andrea Horvath, longtime former Ontario NDP leader, is now in the race uh, committing to doing so yesterday and uh, signing her nomination papers and handing them in is the former leader of the New Democrats the instant favorite to win. Well, there's three other candidates in the race. As of right now, the deadline to enter is August 19th. Peter Greif is a professor of political science at McMaster University and is going to chime in on this issue. Peter, good morning. How are you? Great, thanks. This decision by Ms. Horvath has long been rumored, now a reality. Any surprise from your perspective on on Horvath entering the race? Uh, not really. I mean, to the extent that this was, I think, something that she'd wanted to uh, try to do, to try to become mayor of Hamilton. Maybe a bit of surprise that it comes so quickly on the heels of that last provincial election and, and the fact of having, you know, won a four-year mandate to represent the people of Hamilton Centre. Uh, you know, one might have thought that in another four years would have been, uh, you know, a more typical timing. Should she be considered the favourite? Uh, there are three, actually four, very different candidates. Um, would she be at the top of the list? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I don't think we really have a favorite in this race at, at this point. I mean, if we want to, you know, go based on name recognition, I, I don't see her as necessarily ahead of Bob Bertina, who, of course, has already held the, the role of mayor, uh, you know, and had a high profile in, in various roles in this community, uh, you know, ahead of becoming mayor. So, you know, and those, for that reason, I, I would think that, uh, no, she wouldn't necessarily be considered the favorite uh, in this race. Um you know, it's really quite wide open. And, uh, you know, both Mr. Bertina and, and Ms. Horvath, uh, you know, have, have maybe not elaborated the clearest view about why they want to be mayor, what their project is. And and, and for that reason, uh, you know, Keaton Loomis, who maybe has done more of that, uh, you know, also has to be considered, uh, you know, among the three. So in many ways, I think we have a three-way race uh, going into uh, September when, as you point out, probably half or more than half of Hamiltonians really haven't been thinking about this to make a decision. Uh, Ijaz but the other contender in the mayoral race here in Hamilton, you mentioned Keenan Loomis. Prior to Ms. Horvath's entry, it was really the the old guard or the anti-LRT movement with Bertina and the pro-LRT kind of new wave of political thinking, if you will, with, with Keenan Loomis. Do you think he's most upset at Andrea coming into this uh, this campaign? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, on the one hand, it does uh, crowd the LRT space. On the other hand, you know, on on another key issue, which is expanding the urban boundary. I mean, he's the only candidate who's really pushing for its extension uh, with Mr. Bettina and Ms. Horvath, you know, more keen uh, to limit uh, the expansion. So I think it's complicating in that way. I think in, in many ways, it probably was a good day for Keaton Loomis because I suspect uh, Ms. Horvath and, and Mr. Uh, Bertina are probably competing over many more votes and uh, then ultimately Ms. Horvath and Mr. Uh, Loomis will be uh, competing over. So, 
uh, if anything, it may split the vote. Uh, he may have a better chance in a three-way race than if it was just head-to-head with Bob Bertina. We know that municipal politics is uh, not based on partisan politics, but the, and we know that partisan politics is very divisive, especially nowadays. Will the stain of that divisiveness follow Andrea? And some voters might have that perception in their mind. Uh, I mean, I certainly, uh, Ms. Horvath will probably have to deal or, you know, put forward a, a slightly different tone. But I think it's more that, you know, being part of a political party and very visibly so as its leader for 13 years, you know, will affect people's willingness to support Ms. Horvath. I mean, on the one hand, it's kind of a signal, uh, you know, to NDP voters that, okay, here's, you know, one of your team, if you like, uh, running and maybe you'll support her. But, uh, you know, for the majority of Hamiltonians who aren't NDPers, that's something that uh, Ms. Horvath will have to work against, right, in the sense that people who don't see themselves in the NDP may uh, take that as a reason not to vote for Ms. Horvath. So I think she has a challenge there. Uh, in a sub- somewhat lighter vein, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Bertina has to now carry uh, the, the, you know, the liberal brand. And so in those two cases, I think the the link with a political party is probably as much a hobble as a help. If anything, the latest entrance into the race has made this uh, fall's municipal election all the more interesting here in Hamilton. Peter, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. As Peter Grafe, a professor of political science at McMaster University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We know that in a few weeks' time, and I know parents are rubbing their hands, they just can't wait for their kids to get back into school. Kids are like, no, come on, just let us enjoy the summer. Ontario's education minister unveiling a catch-up plan for when students return to class in September. Is it a good plan? Are there holes in it, or is it one that is going to make sure students learn in an environment that they want to return each and every day? Is it going to be a safe environment? Is extracurricular activities a must? All those things are part of this new catch-up plan announced the other day by Stephen Lecce, the education minister. What do we think about this plan? Merritt Stiles is a NDP MPP in the uh, community of Davenport and uh, joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton, also the education critic for the New Democrat Party. Merritt, good morning. How are you today? Great. Thanks uh, for inviting me. Thanks for coming on once again. This catch-up plan, what what sticks out to you? What, what do you like about it? What do you not like about it? Well, first of all, I should say, I think that everything in this plan was announced back in the spring. So there's nothing really new here that we didn't know already. But, uh, and I think, you know, everybody, certainly, um, we know that kids need more help to get back on track. Anything that we can get for them in terms of additional resources and time with their, with their teachers and other education workers is good for them. Uh, we need extra support academically and emotionally for our kids. But the thing with this plan is that there's nothing, again, really new here. And there's a lot of questions about what this actually means in terms of uh, translating into additional support in the classroom. I would have liked to see, for example, smaller class sizes. That's something this government could do right away. Uh, Reduce class sizes, add more education workers into our classrooms to provide our kids with more one-on-one support. That's the kind of thing we've been hoping for and asking for now for some time. 
And that's the kind of thing I was hoping to see from the government. The one thing I didn't see, and maybe you saw, maybe it's in like the footnotes, but it's the what if factor, because we know that COVID-19 is extremely unpredictable. Uh, various new mutations and subvariants have come about that have, uh, you know, changed the game from, from month to month or season to season. And, and this fall or this winter might be more of the same. I didn't really see anything in terms of, you know, if something happens, then we're going to do this. Uh, basically saying that uh, it sounds like the government's just proceeding as this could be and will be a normal school year ahead. Mm-hmm. But what are the contingencies? Where's the safety net? Where's the backup plan? Where's the what if? Well, uh, well, exactly. And I mean, one of the things we saw throughout the pandemic was that the government would you know make one call and then scramble and in the last minute, make a different decision and, and you know, never inform the school boards until the last minute, uh, never, ever sit down and talk to the education workers who are on the front line about what this was going to, how this was going to impact our kids. And, and I think we can't afford to have that kind of confusion again. So I would have liked to see the government explain to people, here's what we're going to be looking at. Here's what, you know, we're going to be listening to the experts and here are the markers that they're watching. These are the kinds of things we'd like to see. And I think, you know, everybody wants a little bit more certainty. Of course, we know that things can change. Uh, We hope we can get back to normal as much as possible. But the other piece of this is, you know, we've been asking and a lot of the education workers have been asking as well all throughout this pandemic. There were things the government could have anticipated and they could have done to help reduce the school closures so that kids could spend more time in person in school, even through the pandemic. And again, things like reducing class sizes, focusing on ventilation, uh, you know, making sure that you had rapid testing plans in place, ready to go, uh, access to those kits. Those things came, you know, too late in many cases or not at all. So this was the opportunity for the government to actually roll up their sleeves and prepare and make sure we're in a better position and I, I feel like, unfortunately, they may not have have done that. Merritt Stiles is the education critic for the NDP and our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML as we chat about the education ministry's catch-up plan for when students will return to class this September. Remote learning, from what I understand, will still be offered to those who want it. Should it be? Well, you know, I think that in terms of the safety of kids, there are going to be some families that probably still feel uh, that they need to protect their vulnerable children or, or vulnerable family members. Uh, we know that that's, that's going to be a reality for some people. But what really concerns me, actually, is the government continuing to move forward with these mandatory online classes for, for high school students. You know, you'll recall that before the pandemic hit, they were pushing for four of those, that students would have to take four classes online. Now, if we've learned anything in this pandemic, you'd think it was that this is not the best way for kids to learn, right? We would prefer to get kids into classrooms there where they can learn and they can catch up both academically and again, emotionally, socially. Uh, so, so this is a very important uh, piece. There will always be a place for some kind of online courses. You know, a high school might not have access to every option in terms of courses and kids may want to have, make those choices in high school, but, but really to force kids to do that. And now they are, are still forced to do two of those courses online, I think is a real mistake. It's really about the government trying to save money rather than actually provide the best education for our kids. There has been talk for years now of making teachers essential workers to to have that designation for them. Are, are you hearing whether that's uh, we're any closer to that? Your thoughts on that? Well, I think, first of all, 
you know, the government talking about this at all right now is setting the wrong tone because they're heading into negotiations with all the education unions. So to me, that sounds like a threat, right? Because what it does is it closes the door for uh, for teachers, for other education workers to be able to to take any kind of work action if they are not happy with something the government's, you know, imposing on public education in this pro in this province. And you'll recall that there were work actions in the in advance of the of the pandemic. Uh, there were picket lines and and parents and students were standing there right alongside those those teachers because they knew they were fighting the good fight uh, against cuts by this government. So I'm a little concerned that though generally that this is setting the wrong tone. Uh, when you head into negotiations, you know, you, you need to roll up your sleeves and you need to sit down and need to listen to each other and and be open. And this government is is going in with basically a big threat that's not healthy and it's not going to get us where we need to go. Last one for you, and we only got about 30 or 45 seconds to this. Uh, Andre Horvath, former leader of the NDP, now running for the mayor's seat in Hamilton. Um, your words of uh, wisdom for uh, voters in Hamilton and what they're getting in a potential mayor in Andrea Horvath. Well, I think the people of Hamilton know how hard Andrea Horvath has worked for them for many years, not just as leader of the official opposition, but also prior to that as a city councillor. Andrea, as long as I've known Andrea, which is much of that period, Andrea has always been so proud to be from Hamilton. She loves this city. She loves everything about it. And I think she has amazing vision for the city. So I I think it's wonderful news for the people of Hamilton. Of course, we'll miss her at Queen's Park uh, a lot because she's been extraordinary and she's done a great deal uh, to support our party and move our party forward and, and the people of Ontario. But boy, I mean, it will be fantastic to have a strong mayor like that for the city of Hamilton. Merritt, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us and enjoy your day. Thank you. That is Merritt Stiles, Davenport NDP MPP and education critic for the New Democrats. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This process of getting together is not only a First Nation one, it's a... Uh, an effort that we all need to do together as Canadian citizens and First Nations alike. I think uh, that'll go a long way in regards to um, uh, the understanding of truth and reconciliation in in regards to uh, working together, living together. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. That's the voice of Chief Desmond Bull of the Louis Bull First Nation in Alberta saying the Pope's message of healing and forgiveness must be heard by non-Indigenous people as well, not just the Indigenous community. Lyndon George is an Indigenous Justice Coordinator with the Hamilton Community Legal Clinic and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Lyndon, good morning. How are you? I am super groovy. How are you? <laughs> I am pretty good, too. Um, do you, first and foremost, do you accept the Pope's apology? There, you know, Rick, there are so many different layers to this, and I think that what we first have to try to understand is that uh, Indigenous people across Turtle Island, particularly across Canada, we are trying to, um, first of all, navigate through these conversations without causing more harm to our survivors, our intergenerational survivors, our relatives who belong to Catholic faiths, Christian faiths, and to traditional Indigenous spiritual beliefs. So I think first we have to recognize that there are so many different layers. For instance, one layer that I am still processing is our survivors of residential schools traveling to Rome to meet with the Pope and and ask for uh, him to come to the territories and apologize. 
and and then also asking the return of sacred items to their communities. Another layer is a visit itself and the enormous amount of money spent on this visit where money could have went to providing clean drinking water to Indigenous communities across Canada who have yet to see that. Another layer is the apology itself. Then another layer is the gifting of the sacred item to the Pope. Another layer, there are so many different layers that Indigenous people, myself, um, we are trying to navigate, we are trying to identify, and as we're identifying these layers, we're identifying the emotional aspects that are connected to these layers. So the apology is just one aspect of what we're trying to navigate and identify is either uh, opening an old harm that has been done or creating a new harm. So is it safe to say you're not ready to fully accept the apology until these other things are done? No, well, actually, no, it's not safe to say that. <laughs> what it is safe to say that is I'm still trying to identify uh, how I am feeling about what's going on. I'm still working through, as well as uh, thousands of other Indigenous peoples, I'm still trying to work through everything that's been uh, that's been going on. And I feel that while I'm still working through the layers of harm and trauma that this visit represents or that it has uh, brought out from historical harms that I am feeling emotionally fragile and vulnerable. And however fragile and vulnerable I am, Canadians want to hear how I am feeling about what's going on in reality. I don't really know how to feel because it's not over yet. The visit is still going on. The continuation of healing from historical harms still happening and the anticipation that there may possibly more be more harm yet is still glooming. In saying that, are you glad that you are beginning this process or continuing this process? Um, every day is a new day in healing for myself. And I can only speak for myself, uh, but every day is a new day of healing for myself. And I feel as though that while I am making some progress with helping others to see and or feel more clearly, an understanding of my lived experience as an Indigenous person living in Canada, that this progress also exposes more pain that I am left to feel and process. Some, sometimes, Rick, it feels that we collectively take one step forward and then another dark chapter in our shared history of the relationship between Indigenous people and Canada is revealed. And then I fall back emotionally, spiritually, mentally, two steps. So it feels that it's a daily battle to confront and process all of the harm that has been exposed, all of the harm, the historical harm that has happened. And there's always that anticipation of what is going to be the next harm done. What I do want to say, because I know we have limited time, is that there has been a document that has been published by Cindy Blackstock uh, on July 25th, and 2020 to do, and it's a to-do list. And one of the most important things that she talks about, uh, and if you don't know who Cindy Blackstock is, please Google her, uh, whoever's listening, Google and find out all the incredible work um, that Cindy Blackstock has done. But what she cites in this document is the Pope's apology began by recognizing the Governor General and the Prime Minister, which are both offices arising from colonialism, before mentioning the residential school survivors and the children who died to whom this apology is properly addressed. I think that speaks volumes about what's happening in terms of this uh, visit by the Pope. 
And then she goes on to talk about a whole list of things that should be implemented, that should be instituted, and that should be corrected. That's a very good point. Lyndon, we have to leave it there because we are plumb out of time. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us, and best of luck on this continuous journey. Absolutely. Have a super-duper groovy day. That is Lyndon George, Indigenous Justice Coordinator with the Hamilton Community Legal Clinic. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Mental health experts at McMaster Children's Hospital have developed a new and innovative psychotherapy program. It's called I Am Safe. And it focuses on improving family uh, family communication, uh, increasing coping skills to prevent suicide, reducing conflict. It sounds like a very valuable program in our community. Dr. Krista Boylan is an associate professor of psychiatry and behavioral neurosciences at McMaster University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Boylan, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm great, thank you. What should we know about this program? I, I was just going to say you did a lovely job. Essentially, <laughs> <laughs> essentially, it is what we call a brief intervention, and it is psychotherapy. So it's talking with a therapist, with the parent or the caregiver, and the young person. And in this case, it's teenagers, age 12 to 18. And it goes for about six weeks, and it's meant to help young people after they've come into the hospital in what we call a mental health crisis most of the time they have suicidal thoughts or have harmed themselves. So we want to offer this to as many kids as possible once it's been tested to show how effective it is. So it's still in the research stage. So, the, yeah, as you mentioned, this is a, a, a clinical trial that is going on. So what you are, uh, from what I understand, what you hear from these individuals who come into the ER will formulate how the program is offered. Is that correct? Well, that's a good, that's a very good point. It, the, the program is standardized, so that's the beautiful thing about it. It's in a manual, and it's something that anybody can learn to do if they have the right type of training as a therapist. So we're excited that maybe someday it can be rolled out across the province, for example. But it's only offered to young people who come in with suicidal thoughts or behaviors, as, as we call it, which could be har- trying to harm themselves or make a suicide attempt. So if that's what the child or teen, I mean, teen comes in with, they, could, they would be offered participation in the study. So how does this program differ from others that are being offered right now? That's, a, that's, that's an excellent point. So the, the part that's absolutely different is the fact that this intervention is offered to the caregiver slash parent and the teen at the same time. Existing interventions focus on one or the other, and we know from research and that others have done that when you do it as a, as a group, like having people communicate with each other and be comfortable talking about what's going on, that's what leads to the greatest improvement. So this is the really novel part of this. As you can only imagine, I mean, children and teens have been st- struggling with this issue for, you know, probably centuries, really. It's just we don't know that for sure because we've only been doing research for a couple of decades. But we know that this has been happening for a long time, and, and people caring for teens know that they need support. So there are other interventions. They're just not as prescripted or structured, and it's also not offered to the whole uh, the, the parent-child team. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Dr. Krista Boylan, Associate Professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at McMaster University. And we're talking about a new and innovative six-week psychotherapy program called I Am Safe. Um, 
I understand that there's uh, half a dozen participants already in the program. How are they doing? Well, that's a that's a. Um uh, a, a bit of an underestimate. So that was when we uh, were talking about it a couple months ago. Now we have about 25 who oh, wow. have completed. And there, we're, we're not having any issues at all. People are participating. They're finding it helpful. And the biggest thing that we, you know, know at this point is that people are getting connected to other services after they're done with us, uh, which is also a very important endpoint. We, we really worry about losing families uh, to treatment because it is is difficult to transition to uh, another care provider after they've been in the hospital. So we help to bridge with that part. What I will say, though, is that we are doing like a six-month follow-up for each of the of the families to see if the benefits are lasting that long. And I wouldn't say that we know that yet just because of the stage of the study. Have there been any uh, patients who have really struck a chord with you in terms of you know how they came into the program and now how they're doing? Uh, So I've done this work for 20 years, so I can think of so many families who struck a chord with me that are not even part of the study. The folks that are part of the study are just like those other families, though, because this problem is, it presents kind of the same way in almost all families. What we're most, I I think, struck by is how eager people are to do this. Um, There's definitely a recognition now as time has gone on that teens need that support. I think when I started working uh, in the field, let's say 20 years ago, um, there was not a recognition that this was an important issue. And now I think probably for a lot of reasons, families want the help and they know that it will help the child and the family, uh, which I don't think people would have recognized, um, you know, even 10 years ago. We only got about 90 so, seconds. Is there, is there a common denominator in terms of the thought process uh, revolving around suicide that is similar from, from youth to adulthood? The feeling of loneliness and disconnection right. uh, is very much a reason why young people come into the hospital needing that kind of help. Sadly, I think a lot of uh, youth are not coming into the hospital. They have uh, maybe a slightly different experience, but it's a need to feel that someone is listening and willing to listen to what they're going through and to help them get the help that they need. So it's almost like just a helping hand. That's what people are looking for in times of desperation. If someone wants more information about this program, how do they go about doing so? This is a difficult thing to answer because it's a research study. Mm-hmm. People can only find out about it when they're eligible to participate. So once they've come into the emergency room in a psychiatric crisis. So in some ways, I don't want them to know about it unless they've come into the hospital. Yeah. But when people come into the hospital at McMaster Children's, they are told about the study if they are eligible. And then we we try our best to to meet with them immediately. Dr. Boylan, appreciate the time. Best of luck with this program going forward. It's already, as as we clearly have learned this morning, already doing some amazing things. Thanks for the time. You're welcome. Thanks, Rick. That's Dr. Krista Boylan, Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at McMaster University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There's going to be a lot of running going on at the 2022 Commonwealth Games, which is kicking off this week in Birmingham, England. And uh, that community also welcoming a delegation from Hamilton, because as you well know... 
Hamilton vying for the 2030 Commonwealth Games. It'll be the 100th anniversary of the former British Empire Games, which were first held right here in Hamilton. So what is going on in Birmingham? Well, let's bring in the mayor of West Midlands, which includes Birmingham, uh, Andy Streets. Andy, good morning. How are you? Good morning to you, Rick. Well, how am I? I'm excited and proud that we're going to be welcoming the world from tomorrow. I bet you are. What uh, what preparations have been made and, and how is this transforming the Birmingham area? Yeah, so um, it was four and a half years ago, December 2017, that we won the right to host the Games. And of course, in that four and a half years, an enormous amount has happened. So obviously, new stadia. So we've got a new swimming complex We've got uh, a brand new uh, athletic centre where the opening ceremony will be held in a suburb of Birmingham. And that's meant a huge regeneration of that area. And of course, as well as those physical things for sports, we've had new transport infrastructure put in place. And of course, we've done all the stuff to sell 1.2 million tickets. And we're also, lastly, looking forward to showing the scenes of Birmingham uh, to 1.5 billion uh, viewers on TV around the world, including, of course, in Canada. It's a, it's always an exciting event to see the athletes uh, compete in the various sports. But more importantly, at least for, for, I think, many viewers, is checking out what each and every host city over the years has been able to uh, construct and build. And the spotlight on the city is an amazing one. When it comes to those legacy projects, and you rattled off a long list there, yeah. is, is there one that is going to be long-lasting? Because I think whenever a city is hosting a major international sporting event, they want to see something that continues to exist years down the road that's benefiting the community? What would be that number yeah, one item? You're, you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, when we bid for this, it wasn't just about doing it for a couple of weeks in the spotlight. It was about the long-term impact. And, you know, there's lots of physical things, as I've just said, but I think the real value, and it was why the business case was presented to the British government and they supported it, was really the sort of international profile of the place and the way in which business and tourism can benefit to that. And so if all those people see a brilliant image of Birmingham and the West Midlands on the TV, hopefully we'll see that in tourist numbers in the years in the future. So it's not just about the physical infrastructure. And one other thing we're doing, Rick, we've got a huge business conference here. We call it um, uh, a UK house or branded under Britain is great. And that literally investors from around the world are coming here for 10 days to think about investing in the West Midlands, and that's a huge legacy as well. Absolutely. Andy Street is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Mr. Street is the mayor of West Midlands, which incorporates uh, Birmingham. Birmingham, England is playing host to the 2022 Commonwealth Games. There is a big part of community pride in this as well. It's not just all about legacy projects. There's a buzz, I'm sure, in Birmingham. Yeah, you're right. And so the best example of that is, of course, the volunteers who've stepped forward and they will be the face of the Games. So uh, we needed 14,000 volunteers. We actually had 41,000 people apply, most of them from Birmingham and the West Midlands, but actually lots from around the world as well. And I'm sure there'll be a few Canadians amongst those volunteers. And we saw it at the London Olympics. They're really the face of the games, they're the first people you meet when you get off the bus or whatever. So there's, an, and, you know, there's just an incredible sense of pride here today with just 24 hours to go to opening ceremony. And it's those volunteers who really carry that pride most clearly. With any international major sporting event, there is always some trepidation in terms of how much yeah. uh, these things cost. Uh, have you yes. been able to keep the cost down or at least under budget? Yes. We are on time. 
uh, and of course, given that uh, uh, two of the four years that we've had to prepare uh, are uh, were COVID years, and we are under budget. So uh, given the challenges, I'm sure it's the same in Canada about inflation in construction costs, for example, we are really very pleased with how that has gone. So yeah, we're saying we're on time and on budget. That is amazing, given the circumstances of what is happening around the world with, as you mentioned, inflation and a bunch of other things. Uh, do you have a favorite sporting event that you're going to have your eye on? Uh, well, we've got uh, so many. But I'll tell you one thing that um, I think is really very special. Um, of course, everyone's going to be excited about the 100 metres and, of course, the relays and the rivalry between what will be the English team, of course, because we compete as four separate home nations and the Canadian team in the relays will be remarkable given your success recently at the World Athletics. Uh, but the thing I'm really looking forward to here is women's cricket. Now, each home city has an opportunity in the Commonwealth Games to add three sports in. And we chose women's cricket because you may have heard of Edgbaston, which is one of the most famous cricket grounds in the world, which is here in Birmingham. We were determined that would be part of our piece. And the ticket sales have been incredible. And of course, India and Pakistan, uh, both members of the Commonwealth, uh, uh, cricket is the national sport in those areas. So it's going to be incredibly well supported. So I'm actually hugely looking forward for that. And one of the things we've done, we've actually got more medals for women than men for the first time ever in these Commonwealth Games. So that is something going to be very special, the women's cricket. That's pretty cool. we got another minute with Andy Street, the mayor of West Midlands, which includes Birmingham, the host city of the 2022 Commonwealth Games. We know there is a delegation from Hamilton with the Hamilton 2030 yeah. bid in Birmingham. What's your advice to the folks behind Hamilton 2030? Do it. Um, uh, you know, we, we perhaps I should answer this question in two weeks' time, uh, but with a day to go, we're feeling really confident actually that what we said we'd achieve through these games in terms of jobs for people, training for people, physical investment, that opportunity to propel the brand around the world looks as though it's going to come true. And uh, we, this isn't a charitable activity, by the way, this is a very hard nosed business case. Do you get the repayment on it? That was the only way we persuaded the British government to support us on it. So, my advice to Hamilton would be absolutely go for it be really clear about what we're trying to achieve and write that hard-nosed business case. Great stuff. Thanks for the time, Mr. Street, and enjoy the games, and good luck with them as well. Thank you very much indeed. That's Andy Streets, the mayor of West Midlands, which includes Birmingham, England, the host city for the 2022 Commonwealth Games. Uh, not only are the games starting in, well, about 24 hours' time, it is also welcoming a delegation from Hamilton, who, of course, will be bidding, we think, we hope, at least most of us, for the 2030 Commonwealth Games here in our city. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.